rising prices, falling currencies, the effects of inflation are hitting hard. But in this age of globalization, what role is the Chinese regime playing in U.S. inflation? And how is the Middle East involved? In this special report, we look at how players in different countries move across the global chessboard and how actions thousands of miles away are felt here at home. Welcome to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. With prices at a 40-year high and supply chains snarled, Americans are feeling the effects of inflation. Most eyes are pinned on the Fed. But there's a second area that's in play, China. If we have supply chain disruption, this increases the price of goods. And of course, we import tremendous number of our goods or percentage of our goods from China. So anything that's been disrupted, of course, the price is going to go up. The world's second largest economy has a major impact on what people here in America can or can't buy. Now, one of the things a lot of people miss with China is that they look at the trade between the United States and China in finished goods and finished services. But what they forget is that China does a lot of processing. So a lot of minerals and raw materials that are extracted maybe from Africa or Latin America or elsewhere in the world, even from the United States, there are minerals we extract here that we send to China for processing. China economic analyst Antonio Graceffo notes the zero COVID-19 lockdowns might just seem like China's problem. But when the world's factory grinds to a halt under lockdown measures, those effects ripple over to the U.S. So if the zero COVID policies are shutting down those processing plants or the shipping and things like that, it drives up the prices of those things. And it's not just finished products, it's also what we call inputs. Uh, so you might have components that are made in China. Even goods that you typically believe are made in America might have components from China. So it winds up drive, driving up the price of everything. But it goes beyond that. The lockdowns don't just impact China's factories. The Chinese regime just partially shut down the world's largest wholesale hub in East China. That's due to a new outbreak of virus cases. It's also impacted an important port in the South China Sea, known as China's Hawaii. The new lockdowns are triggering renewed worries and global supply chain disruptions. As to why the South China Sea is important, one-third of global shipping passes through these waters every year. That includes over $5 trillion in U.S. trade. That's also where Taiwan comes into play. A military blockade around Taiwan would also trigger price increases here at home. That's especially true for semiconductors or microchips. Taiwan produces 90 percent of the world's high-end chips. The tiny devices go into everything from cell phones to computers, cars and military equipment. A disruption there caused by a military conflict would drive up prices across the board too. But before going into other areas sparking rising costs, it's important to note what drives inflation. Because it's more than seeing higher prices in stores or at the pump. People are mistaking higher prices with inflation and it's not exactly the case. The higher prices because of the supply chain disruption, yes. But the inflation is caused by reckless spending on the pandemic. I mean, the pan pandemic spending. Inflation comes from the government printing money or the government borrowing money and spending money that it doesn't have. Part of that goes back to the pandemic back in 2020. 
The Department of Health and Human Services declared a public health emergency. It was set to expire on July 15th, but the Biden administration extended it for 90 days. What a lot of people don't understand is a lot of people are saying to me, what does it mean they extended the emergency? Nobody's wearing masks. You don't have to have a vaccine to go to the movies. No, but what it means is that all these economic uh, programs remain in place. It means the government continues to spend recklessly because of the continu continued emergency. Speaking of emergencies, the pandemic isn't the only one in effect. And that's why a few weeks ago, when the White House said that they were going to declare an emergency for the uh, uh, climate emergency, I was like, oh my God, no, please no, because it's already so much spending. I mean, we're talking about years of GDP that are just being spent right now. That's your inflation. These other things are price increases. That's not exactly inflation. And one way Congress is fighting inflation is by spending more. Congress just passed the $430 billion Inflation Reduction Act, which aims to fight climate change and reduce prescription drug prices. But not everyone agrees this is the way to go. By definition, you cannot spend your way out of inflation. Inflation is caused by government spending. Increasing spending increases the inflation. Uh, I don't know where, you know, Janet Yellen and all that, I don't know where they went to school. And they all probably went to much better schools than I did, you know. I grew up in Tennessee. Uh, but uh, that's madness. The definition of inflation, like what is the cause of inflation? It's government spending. So how are they planning to get out of the inflation? By spending more money. So if boosted spending won't fight inflation, what will? You have to raise interest rates. You have to reduce credit, you have to reduce government spending, you have to reduce social programs, you have to reduce everything that pushes money into the economy because we need to decrease the money supply, and that's how you curb inflation. But Graceffel adds, instead of doing that, the U.S. is headed towards something called a perfect storm. And what we're doing is we're setting ourselves up for stagflation, which is just the absolute worst. It is the, the, the what do they call it, the perfect storm you know, of economic problems. Because what happens is the Fed raises interest rates, which causes hardship for a lot of people. If you're trying to buy a home right now, mortgage rates are very high. If you want to buy a car, more, you know, the rates are high. So this is negatively impacting people. Businesses do not expand. When the interest rates go up, businesses don't expand. They, they don't want to borrow money from the bank to build another factory because now they're built, borrowing at a higher rate, right? So that's how it impacts the economy. Looking beyond the U.S., there are two major areas also affecting prices. Pushed to the forefront on both is oil. President Biden has blamed big oil and Russia for the spiking fuel prices. He's also considered slashing tariffs on China, which he argues would lower inflation in the U.S., but make the U.S. appear weak on China. Now, to solve the first one, President Biden recently made a trip to Saudi Arabia, but it didn't go quite as planned. When, when our president travels to Saudi and asks them to pump more oil, to produce more energy, they have to be looking at us as though we've got two heads. They know that we can be energy independent at home. That's REA Lightstone, former special envoy for the Abraham Accords and author of Let My People Know. Right now, the U.S. says we can't be energy independent because of climate change concerns. But Lightstone says... It's not called regional warming, it's called global warming. So therefore, if there's an energy climate issue, then it should affect the United States just as much if it's pumped in Saudi, Iran, Venezuela, other places that we've gone to ask them to produce more energy, as well as it does when it's produced in Texas 
or in the Dakotas. So when we turn and look at them and say, we need you to produce more energy, they look at us and say, why aren't you producing your own energy? It doesn't make any sense. But that has impacts beyond just oil. It also affects who countries choose to work with. Lightstone says when it comes to the Middle East. Clarity is the number one uh, name of the game. And to be clear, who are our foes? And that's Iran, and that's China, and that's Russia. And you can stand with them or you can stand with us. Now, who are our allies? That's Israel, the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, Saudi Arabia, and others. And we'll stand with them. But if we don't, Lightstone warns. And when our allies get mixed messages, they have to act in their own best interest. None of these guys, none of these countries want to run to the Chinese. They don't want to run to Russia. They don't want to run to Iran. But if we're not there and we're not dependable, where are they going to go? He described some examples. Two very clear examples to that. When Abu Dhabi, the capital of the United Arab Emirates, sustained a drone attack from terrorists funded by the Iranians, we, the United States of America, did not rush to condemn the attacks. We didn't rush to provide aid. We didn't rush to provide additional defensive alignments. We waited and we listened. That's not how allies treat each other. When the Saudis received relentless drone attacks, against civilians and against the number one energy producer in the world, Aramco, and we're not doing more in order to prevent that from happening. In fact, we're taking the Houthis, uh, who are in Yemen, who are primarily responsible for those drone attacks, off of the terror watch list or off the terror list. Not only are we not helping our allies, we're actively hurting our allies. Lightstone says in the case of Saudi Arabia. So when they look at these nonsensical decisions, that our leadership is making, they turn and say, look, China is a good long-term partner. China comes with a lot of challenges, and they're aware of those challenges, but they say there's consistency. And sometimes knowing what those challenges are is worth it on a risk-reward basis versus the not knowing what comes with your allies that you're assuming you can trust, but you can't always trust, if that makes sense. Now, the U.S. has been in the process of finalizing the text to restore the 2015 Iran nuclear deal. But Lightstone argues it's not just Iran that's rising in power in the region. It's two of America's biggest foes. As we retreat from the region and Iran gets stronger, that is the back door or the front door for Russia and China to get a stronger presence in the region. There's no doubt that they are uh, licking their chops for the opportunity for the economic win that comes from the Middle East, the energy supremacy that comes from the Middle East, but also in terms of a strategy for the United States of America. Lightstone argues instead of a place of chaos, the Middle East can be a place of prosperity, not just for the region, but also for the U.S. In one case, he says amid the current talk of removing our manufacturing dependence on China, one of the greatest places that we can pivot to because it's the center sort of of the world is the Middle East and North Africa. A stable Middle East and North Africa can be an enormous source of fantastic manufacturing. You've got the energy there. You've got the geographic location there. You've got great ports that are there. We can replace part of, not all, but part of what we rely upon for China. But that's only if it's under our influence. But that vision of prosperity disappears if the region is under the control of a foe. If it's under Chinese influence, who cares if you move it from China if it's still under Chinese influence? It hasn't done us any good. So this would be a major strategic blunder. The withdrawal from Afghanistan and the 20-year war on terror is still fresh in many Americans' minds. And another war is not something most would support. 
But Lightstone breaks down what it would mean for Americans if the Chinese regime cements its presence in the Middle East. What winds up happening when there is not Middle East stability, we wind up getting involved. So it's the exact opposite. We don't want to get involved, so make sure that we invest in peace. If we ignore it, China, Russia, Iran show up, and we're going to wind up showing up because that's where our energy comes from. That's where our allies are. Let's support the peace, and therefore we don't need to deal with it when it comes time to chaos and war. Now, let's shift to another major factor, how China's economic woes affect America. To begin, it's not just the U.S. economy struggling. China's economy has also been hit hard. I mean, the Chinese economy really is in trouble. Um, it has been. Graceffo says things started really going downhill after the trade war was pushed to the front in 2018 under then-President Trump. The trade war did tremendous damage to the Chinese economy. And it didn't stop there. Pandemic response, the lockdowns, zero COVID, Xi Jinping's crackdown on everything. I mean, because it's not just, you know, finance and it's not just the uh, real estate sector. He cracked down on tech. He cracked down on billionaires, cracked down on the education sector. He wiped out, effectively wiped out the private education sector, which was, you know, billions and billions of dollars and lots of jobs. But on top of billions and billions of dollars lost, there's another area Graceffo says is important that often gets overlooked. That's youth unemployment. We had 10.7 million kids graduate university in China in June. Uh, and youth unemployment now is 19%. And youth unemployment is a really important statistic because it's easy to overlook because these are people that were not part of the economy yet. So when you have, you know, if you have an increase in adult unemployment. Well, these are people that were working and buying goods and paying taxes, right? And when they become unemployed, it immediately impacts the economy. And you can see it with kids. They weren't part of the economy, so it's easy to overlook. Well, that doesn't hurt anything. They weren't earning any money or paying taxes. Yes, but they're not joining the workforce now. So your economy can't possibly expand at the rate it was expanding. And if you have youth unemployment today, uh, it means you're going to have, you know, adult unemployment later, right? And also it means that as old people are retiring, because whatever number of old people retired this year, you know, of course, China has an average age, which is considerably higher than most, uh, well, than a lot of other countries. Uh, so a lot of Chinese people retired this year. Well, if these kids can't find jobs, that means that when these other people retired, the jobs were not left open. Like maybe they just, you know, discontinued that job. Right? So it means that in the future, a very near future, you're going to see a tremendous impact on the economy. So if the Chinese economy is in a contraction, what does that mean for the U.S. and international markets? A lot of the countries that China trades with, China is their number one trade partner. So if your number one trade partner is in a recession, it's going to affect you. One way that's hurting the Chinese economy is actually good news for the U.S. Graceffo notes that right now, Fed is raising interest rates in order to counter inflation here. That's attracting investment to the U.S., which is a good thing. It's taking investment away from China, which is a bad thing uh, for, for the Chinese economy. But with international markets pivoting and investing in the U.S., how will it play out for China and the ripple effect? Reduced investment in China will most likely uh, equal reduced industrial output and reduced exports. And right now, the reduction would be a reduction in growth of industrial output and a reduction in growth of, of exports, right? Um, we're not at a point yet that we're seeing an actual 
contraction of the Chinese economy, but we're seeing lots of negative indicators. One of those indicators is coming from the Chinese regime itself. That's in terms of the country's growth outlook. The C CCP has now dropped the growth target as an indicator of the success of the country, basically. You know, and some of the investment banks are estimating China's growth potential for the year uh, below 4%. Grisefel says aside from the 4% outlook, which still needs to be taken with a grain of salt, the easiest way to sum it up is... Until the lockdown stopped, the Chinese economy just cannot recover. It's literally that simple. Given that the Chinese regime has a major stake in the U.S. economy, experts warn it's important to keep in mind who the real friends and foes are. Lightstone says ultimately... The struggle between the United States of America uh, and China, it's a struggle that I don't think we articulate well enough to our kids. I don't think we talk about it at the kitchen table. This is something that not only do we need to care deeply about, but we need to be prepared to sacrifice for. And I think the future of the United States of America and all of our allies is dependent on us winning this. If we don't think that the Middle East and Israel specifically is a key player to us winning in this war of morality and technological supremacy, then we're missing out on understanding what the chessboard really looks like. So I think if we care deeply about this issue, we should care a lot about the Middle East as well. Given the global chessboard that the world has become, experts say it's important to keep that in mind as we go about making major financial and strategic decisions. Because if it isn't, we might just find ourselves getting deeper and deeper entangled. And that could cost us not just our wealth, but also our lives. Coming up, will President Biden still lift China tariffs after Beijing's harsh response toward House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's Taiwan visit? And North Korea is threatening to destroy South Korean authorities. This after the communist country announced an end to COVID-19 within its borders. More on that after the break here on China in Focus. Welcome back to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Now we turn to today's news. President Biden's decision on whether to lift China tariffs has gotten more complicated after Beijing's fiery response following House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan. Here's more. Beijing's reaction to House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan is making things more complicated for President Biden. That's as he's weighing whether to reduce tariffs on China. Former President Trump slapped tariffs on over $300 billion worth of Chinese goods. The move came after an investigation revealed that China stole U.S. intellectual property through forced technology transfer. Now, Biden's decision is getting even harder to make, at least according to his commerce chief, Gina Raimondo. Raimondo said Pelosi's visit made the situation a little more challenging. She added that Biden is being cautious and wants to make sure that the U.S. doesn't do anything to hurt American labor and American workers. Pelosi visited Taiwan last week, despite threats from Beijing. The trip makes her the highest-ranking U.S. official to visit the island in 25 years. In response, Beijing conducted a week-long military drill in the ocean around Taiwan. When it comes to China tariffs, Biden is under pressure from both sides of the aisle. With inflation hitting a 40-year high, some argue he should reduce tariffs to bring down inflation. Yet some economists say it would do little to actually tame the sky-high prices. 
White House aides are also divided on the issue. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen says she's leaning toward rolling back some tariffs. But U.S. Trade Representative Catherine Tai has defended the tariffs, calling them a significant piece of leverage when negotiating with China. She also noted that a trade negotiator never walks away from leverage. And then there's the big labor unions that are a big part of Biden's constituency. Labor unions have been rallying Biden to keep the tariffs, saying lifting them would hurt American workers. North Korea's Kim Jong-un declared victory in the country's battle against COVID-19 on Wednesday. At the same time, the leader's sister revealed that Kim Jong-un himself had endured fever, suggesting for the first time that he may have caught the infection. In an apparent attempt to deflect blame, North Korea blamed South Korea for the outbreak and threatened to destroy South Korean authorities. Here's a closer look. North Korean leader Kim Jong-un has declared victory over COVID-19, as his sister hinted that he too had caught the virus. Kim blamed South Korea for causing the outbreak and vowed deadly retaliation in a speech on Wednesday. He ordered the lifting of maximum COVID restrictions that have been in place since May. Analysts said the victory declaration could be a prelude to restoring trade with China, which was hampered by border lockdowns. KCNA news agency reported on Thursday that Kim also said North Korea must maintain a steel-strong anti-epidemic barrier and intensify the anti-epidemic work until the end of the global health crisis. Kim's sister, Kim Yo-jong, said the North Korean leader had suffered symptoms when he was quote, seriously ill with a high fever. Officials wiped away tears as she made the remarks on North Korean state television, indicating for the first time that he had likely caught the virus. She also blamed propaganda leaflets from South Korea found near the border for causing the outbreak. North Korea has never confirmed how many people caught COVID, apparently due to the lack of testing supplies. Instead, it reported daily cases of fever, a tally that rose to nearly 5 million people. North Korean defectors and activists in the South have for decades floated balloons carrying anti-Pyongyang leaflets into the North, at times along with food, medicine, money and other items. Kim's sister said North Korea hasn't ruled out tough retaliatory measures against its southern neighbor, including what she called the elimination of South Korean authorities. In response, South Korea called the North's accusation a baseless provocation. That's all for today's China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. If you have any feedback on the show or have something you'd like to see us cover, send us an email at chinainfocus@ntd.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for watching and see you tomorrow. The 2022 NTD 8th International Chinese Vocal Competition will be held from September 29th to October 2nd at the Merkin Hall of Kaufman Music Center in New York City. The competition is honored to have specially invited vocalists with the world-renowned Shen Yun Performing Arts to serve on its panel of judges. The gold award is $10,000. For more information, please visit vocal.ntdtv.com.